I want to open with a story this morning. Um, it's, a, it's actually a fictional story. Uh, it's written by a short story writer from uh, the 19th century uh, in France, uh, a gent by the name of Guy de Maupassant, uh, wrote a story called The Necklace. And the reason I'm sharing the story is because it, although it's not actually true, it's a fiction story, it shares some deep truths about, about betrayal, actually, uh, about what it means to betray a person and maybe be, be betrayed by values that you might hold that aren't right. Um, the story centers around a lady called Madame Loiselle, as uh, a French lady, and she uh, was continually attracted to high society uh, in a way that her, her income couldn't support. Uh, she wanted to move in sort of high circles, she wanted to be seen, she wanted to be looking rich and famous and wonderful, and uh, she, she really wanted that lifestyle, but she didn't have it, and constantly yearned after it. Um, but then one day, one of her, she had a rich friend, and this rich friend invited to her, her to like a, uh, this big social occasion, it's like a big event, really exactly the kind of thing that she'd love to be seen at. And so uh, she spends loads and loads of money on a dress, uh, kind of wipes out a bit of the savings on this amazing dress, and then uh, she looks at the dress and she kind of thinks, oh, that's not quite right, and her husband says, well, why don't you just wear fresh flowers with it? Great suggestion, but she says, no, I want all the bling to go with it. Um, I want a diamond necklace. Uh, and so she goes and sees her, her friend, and, and her rich friend says, well, actually, I've got a diamond necklace that I can lend to you that you can wear to this special occasion. Uh, and so she puts the diamond necklace on, and she feels absolutely incredible. And she goes to this party, um, and she's like the talk of the town, you know, that everybody's like amazed by who she is, and she's just loving it and lapping it up. And it's all going really, really well until that evening when she gets home, she finds that she's lost the diamond necklace. It's lost. It's gone. And she's devastated, and she's like panicked as well. So she chats to her husband, and they decide that, you know, that she's filled with shame about it. And she, you know, her pride is so strong, she doesn't want to reveal that this is what's happened. So she, she and her husband go along to a jeweler's in Paris, and they uh, find, uh, they're fortunate enough to find an identical uh, diamond necklace, except it's 200,000 pounds, or the equivalent of that uh, back then. Uh, and so they kind of make a decision. They decide, well, we're going to have to get this diamond necklace back to this lady. We can't just let this go. Uh, and so they, they kind of put all their inheritance money into the purchase and, which was only about half of it, and then the rest of it they fund with quite a steep high interest loan. And it's a real mess. But they return these real diamonds to this lady and uh, they, they kind of then settle down to a decade or more of hard work. And of course, by the end of this decade of hard work, she's not quite as pretty anymore. He's really run down. They've lived scrimping and saving to try and pay this loan off, but they eventually get there. Um, and her pride has prevented her from speaking to her friend about it. And, but then when the, lo the loan's all paid off and they've cleared the debt and they've, they've kind of got out of it, she happens to see her rich friend in the street and uh, she says, oh, you know, well, this is what happened. You know, we, we were mortified and we, we bought you another one. And the lady said oh, no, 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 I wish you'd said. They were just costume jewelry. That, that, that was not the right thing to do. <laughs> and you kind of think, oh, man, that's a really, really painful story, isn't it? Now, it's a fictional story, but the reason I'm sharing it with you is because it highlights some quite important points about betrayal, about betrayal by people and betrayal by values you might hold. Um, you know, this rich friend could have done this lady, Madame Lozelle, a massive favor by saying, hey, listen, these look amazing. 
but they're not worth an awful lot. Don't worry about if it, anything happens to them. Because that's what responsible friends do, isn't it? They set you up for success. They don't set you up to, to, to fail. And then Madame Lozelle, she got wooed in by this desire to be part of high society. Uh, and she had values about being seen and about being socially acceptable and about s- coming across in a certain way with a dress and jewels that actually they're not really to do with decent and honest friendships, are they? And so both of, both of these ladies, one of the ladies let the other one down, I think, and then Madame Lozelle had values that let her down and put her in a, in a, in a vulnerable position. And so sometimes our, our betrayals are from people, they actually betray us, or they're from the values that we hold, and we, we journey in those values for a while, and then we find that actually those values don't really stack up. They're not really the values we should have been having because they've let us down. Uh, so we're talking, uh, we're in part three of our series on the Last Supper, uh, and we're exploring betrayal today. We're, we're looking at the nature of betrayal, um, and just from the outset, what I want to say to you is in, prepara- uh, in preparation of this message, of course, there's any number of stories of betrayal from the real world that I could have called on, and you, you know me, I like a story, and uh, you know, in fact, in, in an in early version of this message, I had a story that involved a real person, and as I was reading it out to Chloe, you know, she said, oh, that's, that doesn't sit well with me, and, and then she, I kind of thought, no, do you know what, that's right, I, I don't want to do that. And so pastorally, what I've done is I've stuck to fictional stuff, and we're going to stick to biblical stuff, but I'm not going to bring out specific issues of betrayal, because that's not fair to those people who are stuck in that, or who have done that, and then are trying to come back from that. Because, you know, one of our values as a church is that you can go on a journey in Christ and be restored from whatever it is that you might have done wrong. And if betrayal is one of those things, if I'm at the front here talking about, oh, well, you betrayed so-and-so, and you, be, you know, for, if I, we could look on social media, we could look in the news, we could look at famous people, that's not fair to those people. I would want for anyone to watch any of our stuff online and, and, and say, well, actually, I can come back from my difficult position. And so I've, I've stuck to fictional stuff. That's why I've chosen a short story, which is not true, but it has principles in it that can help us understand. So that's just something I wanted to say. So, what is betrayal? Well, betrayal is when we thought someone was being loyal, and they ter- it turns out that they weren't. We thought someone was being loyal, and that it turns out that they're actually harming us. It can also be holding a value for a while in life, and then realizing that as we've followed this value, it's turned out not to be as worth what we thought, as what we once thought it was. We've thought this great thing about a particular area of our lives, and we've pursued it, and then we found out that it's, it lets us down. And there's a form of betrayal in that. We are going to be focusing on Judas today. Any survey of John 13 to 17 and the Last Supper has to take into account the fact that Jesus, uh, sorry, that Judas starts at the beginning of the meal and doesn't make it to the end of the meal because he goes off into the night, as Charlie read for us, and to go and do the betrayal of, of Jesus to the religious leaders. And so we're going we're gonna to face quite a difficult subject today. And I, you know, it's a struggle because I'm someone that believes church should be uplifting and, and encouraging, and, and yet we're going to have to face and look down the barrel of a really awkward trait in human beings. But what I want to do today is I want to give us some encouragements around how we can avoid getting into that space in, at all, you know, in, in the first place how we can manage ourselves and have a a responsible discipleship that means that we don't fall into the traps that Judas fell into. 
That makes sense to me. You know, you can, you can learn from everything that there is in the Bible. Most of the time there are positive things, but sometimes there are negative things which we should avoid, and that gives us really helpful instruction. And so that's the case today with Judas. Now, although the focus is a lot on Judas in my message, I also just want to say that betrayal and poor behavior in the area of betrayal isn't solely exclusive to Judas in, in this part of Jesus' life. We have a whole bank of Jewish religious leaders who are literally hell-bent on taking Jesus down out of ministry envy. That's what it is. He's got this fantastic ministry. He's the Son of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He can do all these incredible things. And their dry, dusty, legalistic religion isn't stacking up anymore. And they get very envious, and actually that's the real driver behind them wanting to see him done down. There's a, there's a ministry jealousy there. That's dressed up like, oh, well, he's a bla- you know, Jesus is a blasphemer and he's doing the wrong things by the Old Testament. But they're not really open to him. And so in terms of betrayal, we have a whole bank of people who are out to get him. And we need to just bear that in mind. We also have a, a bunch of disciples who, frankly, when the chips were down, they all ran away. They didn't stick around. And, you know, the, the painful truths for us, truth for ourselves this morning is, had we been there, we would have probably run away as well. You know, for one to go off and betray and the other 11 to run away, that's 100% of people abandoned Jesus. It's not a rosy picture, is it? And we've got to kind of go, oh, okay, <laughs> thanks, Jesus, thanks, God, thanks for that word. But it's better we face it. It's better we look at it. And Like even the leader of the disciples, Peter, tried his best, and he did better than some. He did better than all of them. He followed Jesus to Caiaphas's house, didn't he? And he stood in the courtyard there. But again, when the chips were down, he couldn't quite come out and say, I'm with Jesus. And he denied Jesus three times. So although the focus today is on Judas, I want us to understand that the rest of humanity around this time, they're not putting in a good performance. Let's put it that way. They're really not. So what can we learn from Judas? Let me suggest some things to you. Number one, let's avoid getting manipulated by the enemy. Number one, let's avoid getting manipulated by Satan, effectively. Uh, It says in John 13, 27 there, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Uh, And I've got to say, that wasn't just like a, that wasn't just instantaneous. It's very, it would be very highly impossible or improbable for a person to be going along in a relationship with Jesus and suddenly for Satan to enter them. No, Judas took a whole series of steps to get to this point. And it starts way back in his heart and in his responses to Jesus in his ministry, and we'll get onto that in a little bit. Um, But there's all sorts of reactions that Judas has along the way that sets him up to be open to the enemy. You know, disunity, rebellion, um, not really being quite on board provides a fertile ground for betrayal, doesn't it? It really does. And Judas has stepped along many steps uh, to get to that point. Very interesting to me that Judas, uh, sorry, Jesus gives Judas at least two really clear opportunities not to do what he's going to go and do. And the first we saw in week one of the series, which was that Jesus included Judas in the washing of the feet. I can't even begin to imagine what that must have felt like for Judas to be sitting there, putting his foot in the bowl, and Jesus washing his feet with the thoughts he was having in his mind. You know, something in your heart must harden to be able to do that. I'm not sure, I'm hoping that I couldn't ever do that, have somebody serve me in that way, and then go out and betray them. I really pray that never, ever happens to me. 
Because that shows you the hardness of his heart, doesn't it? But, but Jesus gave him that opportunity. He showed him something uh, really, really clear of, the, of his willingness to still serve Judas and to still count him as included. The second thing is that he offered him some bread. Um, uh, it, says, uh, in, in, uh, it says there, um, they ask, who's the person who's going to betray uh, Jesus? And Jesus says, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I, I have dipped it. Um, there's going to be an offer by Jesus of friendship with the bread as well as the washing of the feet. Now, Jesus gives a really clear signal to Judas here, and Judas decides, no, I'm still going to reject you. I'm still going to go off and do my thing. And I just think it's really important we understand that Jesus gives, Jesus takes us to a place where he's continually giving us opportunity up until the point where it really is too late. And, Ju- and Jesus uh, really does that. As he does that, Satan's influence is suddenly, Satan's influence, sorry, suddenly ramps right up. His influence really increases over Judas. Um, and, and the drama of that is emphasized by John when he writes the, writes the account. He closes off that little section by saying, and it was night. He's saying something, that, no, this is when evil rises up. This is when darkness tries to take over. And of course, we know with hindsight that darkness has a short reign for a short period of time. And then Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit boot it into touch forever with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, And we know that that's, you know, so we know that what Judas tries to go and do is not the end of the story. Uh, It's really not. When Jesus says, he's the one I give the piece of bread to, he's actually making a reference to a, 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 a psalm, a, a Psalm 41 verse 9, which David wrote when he was um, in dispute with his own son Absalom. Uh, it says this in Psalm 41 verse 9, even my friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has raised his heel against me. Uh, and David's writing there about the betrayal of him as king and as dad by his own son Absalom. You may remember the account, what happened there. Absalom decides to form a kind of a faction, and he goes off, and he he kind of wins the hearts of the men of Israel, it says. And he kind of stands at the city gate, and he kind of wins them round, and he creates a a kind of a subculture within the culture, and and it's very divisive. Um, And and David is really um, bereft about this and and, and writes Psalm 41 as a response to his feelings about being betrayed. I want to suggest that there's degrees of influence when Satan enters a person, okay? Uh, Let me just map this out a little bit just to give you some anchor points or reference points. I think for a healthy Christian, Satan's influence is minimal. I really do. I think it's in the form of fleeting temptations, odd thoughts, um, uh, you know, momentary uh, kind of wavering, and then we get back on track, don't we? Uh, and we deal with that with our memory verses, with our, with our, our quiet times, with our accountability groups, um, you know, with speaking out scriptures into the atmosphere, with regular worship. Um, all those kinds of things are really good. We, we keep on track. Uh, we're not totally immune to it, but we sometimes have a thought. Um, then uh, we have Christians who've got an area of their life that they haven't given over to Jesus fully yet. And sometimes that then exhibits itself as what's called a stronghold, which is like a sort of a set of mental strength points, which are resistant to the Lord. And you can often sort of spot these in your life because they often cluster, uh, uh, there will be habits or behaviors that you find hard to stop that are not godly. Uh, And the root of that is that there's a, a mindset or a stronghold where you really haven't given some core beliefs or values over to Jesus properly. 
Um, and, and I think lots of Christians may have experienced that kind of thing and then worked through it or are working through it. Uh, so those are strongholds, and, and the enemy can get a foothold in those. Uh, with non-Christians, people who don't believe in Jesus at all, the enemy doesn't really bother with them because he's kind of in his, they're in his territory already. You know, they're kind of, he views them as on his side. They're, they're, he's won them over. He doesn't need to worry about them. The only time when we get activity around that is when, as the kingdom of God, we go out and do something like May Mission, when we walk out on the streets next Saturday and the Saturday after, and we start talking to people about Jesus, and then the enemy gets a little bit knocked about that, and he'll give you a bit of jip about it, and he'll start causing trouble in their life too. But we know that, we've seen it all a million times before, it's completely boring, and the enemy just needs to get over himself, because he's going to have to, um, if I can just be really honest. Um, so... But broadly speaking, the world, as John often describes it, or non-Christians, the enemy doesn't really fuss about them because he believes that they're his territory, even though really they're completely open game to Christians. Then we have another category, which is the heavily influenced. Heavily influenced. Now, this is kind of people who are pretty much oppressed or demonized in most of their lives. Uh, And they find uh, the enemy would attack them a lot. Uh, perhaps the most extreme example of that from Scripture might be the man in the region of the Gerasenes. You know, he's been overtaken by a legion, that group of demons that completely occupy him. In fact, you know, strong influence can even get to the point of ownership or possession. Um, so those are, those are our levels, if you like. And what I want to do for each of the points, so that, the first point is don't, uh, let's avoid getting manipulated by the enemy because Judas has gone on a long journey of allowing that to happen in his life and suddenly it gets really intense and the enemy ups his activity and he's now in a really dangerous place. Um, for each of the points I'm going to bring today, I want to try and bring you something uh, really kind of practical to help you uh, counter you know, the, the problem, so to, to help you avoid things. And, and for this first point, uh, I want to suggest, a, I've got a demonstration here, which is like a plank and a brick. And um, uh, so basically, this, is, this end of the, of the plank and the brick uh, is secret prayer life, okay? So we, st- we, we kind of stand on the secret prayer life uh, for, uh, for the purposes of the illustration. And that, that's firmly on the ground. You know, there's not going to be an issue there. Um, however, we've also got the other end of the spectrum, which is like the secret sin life. And that's when we've kind of allowing secret sins to happen and we've got like a whole little world going on that we think the Lord can't see, but of course he can see it, but we're kind of indulging it because it feels good. Um, and really, what, I'm, what, what I want to say to you is that in my experience of, of being a Christian, that the more often I'm up this end, the harder it is to drift down this end. Are you with me? If you're here a lot, boy, is it difficult to make that touch the ground. In fact, it's very, very hard to make that touch the ground. So if you're regularly in the Word, if you're regularly praying, if you've got a, a secret prayer life, you know that one that's described by Jesus where you go off by yourself with your father, that one where you spend some time with him, then that really insulates you and inoculates you against the possibility of this. Now, what I also want to say to you is there's quite a few of us uh, that do a little bit of this, don't we? We kind of go, ooh, you know, ooh. We do, don't we? And then we go, no, 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 not today. No, I'm, I'm, I'm back here in the, the secret prayer life and I'm going to pray. And then we, we, there's something very tempting comes along and we kind of, we're just like wobbling on the edge, aren't we? Like, oh, oh, I, I sinned for a split second. But no, no, I'm still balancing. And we do that though, don't we? We do. Uh, come on, honesty moment in the room. Yeah? Come on, let's be honest. So what we need to do to avoid being manipulated by the enemy and to avoid going down that journey that Judas, Judas went on is let's stay in the secret prayer life end of the seesaw. Please, let's do that. 
It's so, so powerful. It's so, so helpful. If you do this, you will not be bothered by this for a long, long time. You really won't. Amen? Good stuff. Second thing, second thing to say is let's align our worship. Let's align our worship in the right way. We've had a wonderful time of worship this morning. Really great. I really felt God's spirit in the house this morning. Uh, a question I want to ask you, though, is, is the thing that you worship handling it well as it receives your worship? And what I'm saying by that is, is it worthy of the worship that you're ascribing it? Or... Will it turn on you? Will it turn on you? Worship's a very special thing. Human beings are designed to worship. The idea that if you're not worshipping Jesus, you've got the option of not worshipping anything isn't true. Actually, if you don't worship Jesus, you're going to worship something or someone. It's going to step into uh, his place. Now, I would suggest there's only one thing in the whole of the cosmos that can handle human worship properly, and it's not a thing, it's a person, and it's not any person, it's the person of Jesus. That's the only person, the only being that can handle our worship properly, because he's the only one who doesn't turn our worship back on us. Every other thing that we might try and worship, in some way or another, breaks down on us when it comes back on us. It it will turn on us in some way or another, even if it's to a small degree. Let me give you some illustrations. If we worship our husband or our wife in our marriage, and that's the highest thing in our relationship, they will struggle under the weight of that expectation that you're putting on them. They really will. They weren't designed to take that weight. They weren't designed to receive worship from you. They're designed for you to love them and for, for them to receive your love not your worship. And it might feel good for a while for them, being worshipped, you know, oh, I worship the ground he walks on, all that stuff. No, that's not a healthy position to have in, in Christian understanding. Do not worship your spouse, or your husband or your wife. Eventually, that will cause cracks in your marriage. What if you worshipped fame? Well, if you worship fame, you then become addicted to the crowd. You, you're addicted to being known by loads and loads of people. But I suggest then that that makes it very difficult for you to have relationships of intimacy and substance because people come at you for the wrong reasons. In many ways, I'm so grateful that I haven't got like a kind of a famous past because, you know, I'd be, if I did, I'd be constantly questioning myself, well, are you in BCC because I had a famous past or because you're just here to receive pastoring? Do you, do you get the deal? Uh, sometimes people are approached because of their fame, not because of who they are. And so when you worship fame, you sometimes have people who come at you for impure reasons. And that's where the worship of fame could turn on you. Uh, Madonna once famously said she wasn't going to be happy until she was more famous than God. Well, she's going to be unhappy then, isn't she? Because no one's more famous than God. And that's a really dangerous thing to be putting out there as a form of worship. What about status or achievements or work or sport or arts and culture? You know, you can worship any number of different things, and each of them have a little twist in them that if you worship them, they come back at you and they destabilize you. Um, you know, it's a well-known phenomenon that if you win an Olympic gold medal, uh, you, you stand a chance of having a, a period of time after that of being a little bit disappointed. And it's just inevitable. You know, if you've worked for that goal for so long, and then you win the Olympic medal in whatever it is you've got, and you get Olympic gold, there's a tendency or a, a vibe of, oh, everything's downhill after this. I've achieved what I set out to achieve. And so sometimes people go on and fix that by going and trying to get another Olympic gold. And then it becomes a series of, trying to, of achievements or many marathons or many skydives. Or, and there's this kind of loop going on because they're looking for something that, out of a form of worship that that thing cannot sustain. 
And actually, it's only Jesus that can receive our worship in that way and, return, and, and not turn on us in it. Jesus is the only person who doesn't turn our worship round on us. Very, very important principle. And of course, we have Judas, and his deal is the worship of money. There's no question that his weak spot was cash. Uh, he, I don't really understand why Jesus did this, but Jesus put him in charge of the, the money bags, uh, the financial ministry of his, of his journeying around you know, uh, Israel and so on, uh, doing his ministry. don't really understand why Jesus did that, because Judas had an issue with this. Um, if we worship money, we are dangerously in the same camp as Judas. Dangerously so. And we have to be very, very careful. There's an episode, um, uh, just get, going back a, a chapter, in fact, to John 12. Let me just read it to you. Uh, then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of, the, of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said... Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put into it. He's annoyed because Mary, this woman, has effectively stopped him from accessing funds that otherwise he would have been able to access. And that shows you where his heart is. In fact, the difference between her heart in worshipping Jesus and bringing devotion to him and his heart in being annoyed with her devotion that he couldn't divide it up in the way he wants is so telling, isn't it? That's a, that's a difference in heart worship right there. The Bible actually brings us a very strong warning and, and, and real clarity around this issue of the love of money. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And that really is a great description of Judas, isn't it? That's exactly what he's done. He's gone and been motivated by money. It's step after step after step down that direction. And finally, it's 30 pieces of silver from the Jewish leaders. Oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Thank you very much. Wow. That's a dangerous path to tread. You know, one of the reasons that... Uh, and here's, here's a response. Here's a response that we can bring uh, to that. Um, if we're wanting to align our worship... Let's make sure that we're getting our money in a right relationship with God and with ourselves. And frankly, the best way to do that is tithing. And I didn't set out to kind of make this message about tithing. I didn't. It's not a stewardship message. But actually, it's a really sensible response to the dangers that we see with Judas. Judas got wooed in by money, money, money. And what we do when we, we set aside that first of what we've, been, what we've been given by God and return it to him with our tithe is it, it kind of stops all of that pressure. It stops all of that temptation. It stops the corrosion that money puts on, in, on the inside of our spirit. Because we do get corroded by finance. It's like rust in a car. You've got to take steps to protect the underside of your car. And I would suggest we have to take steps to protect our finances from that corrosion of, oh, I want a bit more, or I want to keep it. Because if you have that mindset, it's going to corrode you in your spirit. And Judas is the very extreme example of that. And I'm sure that none of you are going that far in this way. I'm, hope, I'm hoping you're not. But it's a warning. Remember, this is a message about let's pick out some examples from Judas's life of how to avoid some problems and some pitfalls. You with me? The third thing I want to say is let's keep on being amazed by Jesus. Let's keep on being amazed by Jesus. The first, the first thing, let's avoid getting manipulated by the enemy. Let's make an intentional strategy not to get manipulated by the devil. 
Secondly, let's align our worship, make sure our worship is Jesus and Jesus first and Jesus at the top and all the other things will fit into their natural order. You know, when you seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things will be added to you, that's the right order of things, isn't it? That's, that's the correct structure for things. But the third thing is, let's keep on being amazed by Jesus. And I want to show you a, a, a story, again from a fictional setting, uh, to illustrate what I mean by being amazed by Jesus and how this relates to Judas. Uh, so back in 2001, 2002, 2003, over a series of three Christmases, like December's, um, uh, they released a trilogy of films uh, called the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, I'm sure lots and lots of you have heard of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's based on a book by a Christian author, a guy called J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, in fact, I think he lived in Birmingham for a while and wrote a lot of the Lord of the Rings from his house in Edgbaston, actually. Um, so he's, he's a local to Birmingham, and he's written this awesome book, I think it's in the 1950s, uh, and it's, a, it's an epic story of the fight of righteousness against evil. And it's been out long enough now for me to tell you that actually righteousness prevails in the end. Um, it centers around an evil ring that is actually like a, a metaphor for wrong worship. Uh, and, and this ring has to be destroyed because it's causing wrong worship and it creates degradation and, and horrible, um, horrible kind of misalignment of value in people. Uh, anyone it comes into contact with, it shrivels them up and they die and they become addicted to it. And so the, this group of uh, these people in this story decide that they're going to get rid of this ring. And, it, and the first film is called The Fellowship of the Ring, and this band of people, including hobbits and dwarves and elves and a, and a good, a good uh, a wizard called Gandalf, set off on this journey to go and get the ring destroyed. Um, now, they come to a mountain range that they can't get over, and so they have to go underneath it through a whole series of tunnels and labyrinth, you know, a kind of labyrinth of different things. And while they're down there, they run into some horrendous uh, characters like lots of orcs and nasty, nasty, you know, different things come at them uh, through all these different dark tunnels and passages. I mean, it's like, it's just awesome stuff if you're a boy of about 10. It's, it's excellent. Um, but then they also run into a really, really awful creature called a Balrog, which is like a fiery demon. And they're running from this fiery demon and they get to this very narrow bridge and Gandalf stands on the bridge, and I mean, he says this phrase that's now passed into our popular culture, you shall not pass to this Balrog. And he stands there, and he's like a force for good against a force for evil. And the Balrog falters, and then the Balrog falls back, and then he slips down into the chasm and starts falling. Uh, and we think that Gandalf has won the day, but unfortunately the Balrog has a whip, and he whips it round, and he catches Gandalf by the foot, and Gandalf clings on to the, the edge of the bridge, and then he, suddenly he's gone as well. And they end the film there. And I'm like, what? And I mean, I know the story, and I know where it's going, but I'm like, oh, man. You know, ending the, talk about ending the film on a, cl a cliffhanger, except they didn't hang on to the cliff. They fell off. And so they're falling. And so I have to wait a whole year to 2002, Christmas 2002, to see the next installment. And I can't wait to get into the cinema, and we're there. And they open with Gandalf and the Balrog falling and falling and falling and falling. And I, my heart is in my mouth. And I'm thinking, where is this going to go? They're falling for like minutes at a time, you know, just ages. And then the camera pans back to, they have a different camera shot in this kind of way, the way they've done it. And it's on the roof of this cavern. And this cavern must be a good three miles wide and huge. And the, the camera shot shows Gandalf in white and the Balrog in burning fire falling in the distance really, really slowly because it's such a long, long way away. And my heart's like, oh my God, that's incredible. Wow. You know, the filmmakers have wanted to produce an effect to me and boy, have they done it. 
They, I'm just so impressed by this, this opening sequence. My heart is in my mouth. I'm, I'm so excited. Okay, so that, that's my reaction to something like that. I go into work the next day, and, and I say, hey, uh, hey, you know, there's a guy at the coffee machine. I said, hey, he, he mentions to me that he's been to see it, and we get talking about it. I said, hey, what about that opening sequence? You know, with, with Gandalf and the Balrog falling down through the cavern. How cool was that? And this is his reaction. I, t- I kid you not. He went, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on a minute. This is a bit more okay. In fact, I have to manage my reaction a little bit. I, I kind of package away my disappointment. And I'm like, my reaction to that was just so much excitement and like, oh. And I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sucker for things like that. If filmmakers set me up right, I'm totally in the palm of their hand. And that's, that's the joy of cinema, isn't it? Um, but this guy wasn't impressed. And actually, what I want to say to us all, there are certain arenas of life where it's fine to be impressed or not impressed. That's, that's cool. And a film is one of them. You don't have to have a mega reaction to a film or an experience. That's, you know, there are certain areas where that's okay. When it comes to Jesus, I think we need to have a reaction. And I think we need to feel a reaction on the inside of us that's from our spirit that responds to the person of Jesus in an excited way. I really, really do. And if we don't do that, there is something not right on the inside of us that needs fixing and needs looking at. And now, I think if you're never having an excited reaction to anything, something is not right. And maybe there's a story there with you where you've numbed down your feelings or you're, you're, you've packaged away something because something's happened to you. I don't know what that is. We won't explore that tangent. But if you're completely numbed down and you're never excited by anything, that's a problem. But if you're never excited by Jesus, that is a big problem. And I think Judas falls into this category. He doesn't really get that Jesus is God. He doesn't really get uh, that Jesus is all who he says he is. He doesn't get excited and motivated by the person of Jesus. Something really interesting that I've noted is that Judas was a man who spent the majority of three years alongside the Son of God in person. He would have heard the majority of Jesus' sermons in person. He would have witnessed a whole load of healings and miracles in person right there. And yet, yes, yeah, okay. What kind of reaction is that? What is that? He doesn't, now this is really telling. Judas is on record as never calling Jesus Lord. He never says it. He says rabbi, which means teacher. And that's fine, he's being polite. He doesn't get it about Jesus. And so one of the great lessons we need to drink in from the example of Jesus is, is Jesus God or not? Is he God or not? And then when we've made that decision, we need to get a little bit excited about that because this is a man who can walk on water. This is a man who went to a synagogue and a guy stretches out his hand and it shriveled and it suddenly went back right again. I mean, this is an incredible person. And I think we need to give ourselves permission to be a little bit excited about who Jesus is. Now, come on. Do we not? We must maintain a healthy expectancy around the person of Jesus. It is really healthy and right to be astounded by him and excited by him and to be thrilled by him. And Peter has that reaction from the very beginning. If you remember back in Luke 5, they go and do the, the, the fish thing and they're fishing all night and they get nothing. And then Jesus says, hey, try over there. And they get a massive catch of fish. And, and Peter feels it in his spirit. And he goes, oh, he suddenly realizes he's in the presence of God. 
He's in the presence of Jesus, and he says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, which is a perfectly healthy reaction to the divine. And he feels it on the inside. Judas doesn't appear to be able to do that, and that is a very, very scary place to be. Do not ever let cynicism rise up in your heart. Always give yourself permission to be astounded by Jesus. Fight cynicism with everything you've got. Maintain your open, wide-open-eyed wonder at the person of Jesus and your amazement at him. Please, BCC, it is so healthy and good for your faith to do that. Would you stand with me, please? And I'm going to ask the worship team just to return. You know, one of the best ways that we can protect ourselves from the rise of cynicism, which is what Judas eventually succumbed to, is praise. When you actively make a decision to praise Jesus or to praise God, you basically boot cynicism into touch because there's no space for cynicism in a heart that's filled with praise. How can you be cynical and praise at the same time? You can't do that. And so by making a decision to praise God, you will deal with cynicism really well. You will kill it in its tracks and you will keep your heart open to the amazement of who Jesus is and what a great person he is, how exciting he is to be around, what a source of life and healing and hope and resurrection power and direction and promise. He's a great person, church. He really is, isn't he? Amen. Come on. So I'm going to ask you, if you want to make some responses to the message today, then feel free to come down and, and, and respond at the front. Come and do some business with Jesus. Come and get some things straight with him. If you're a person that has done a little bit of this recently, we're not going to call you out about that, but if you've done a little bit of this and you know you've done it, and you've got like that, and you, you, you don't want to do it, and you want to get your life down here, which we should do, really, shouldn't we? Then why don't you come out and make a declaration to Jesus? You know what, Jesus? How, however it is up to me for the future, I'm going to be in this place. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. Maybe you want to come and say that to the Lord, because if you come and say that to the Lord, he will be blessed by that. That will be a great thing, and he'll give you strength to stay there. It's not all up to you. Maybe we need to align our worship aright again. And that perhaps you're somebody today that started to sense that some of the other things, you know, like how you try and push a beach ball below a swimming pool and, you know, below the surface and it constantly pops up and you've got things that you're trying to push down. Well, the answer to that is let's get Jesus first and all the other things will just sit in their right place and in their right order. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've got a whole load of things that you're kind of semi-worshipping and it's now time to put them back in the right place. And get Jesus on the throne again. Lastly, give yourself permission to be amazed by Jesus. If you've sensed a cynicism creeping in over your life, or that there's pockets of areas that you've not given to Jesus and they've grown hard in your heart, come and ask Jesus to soften your heart. Come and ask him to do something outrageous in your life this morning, because he will. So we're going to do some business. For those of you who want to do that, just come now. Just come right away as we sing. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time offering some prayer right at the end as well. Let's sing. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, everybody.